this is how tech helps you. Tech will be your sentinel. It will detect significant changes in engagement. It will detect the status of an artist and it will bring it to a dashboard where you can make a decision and give that artist the opportunity of a push. This podcast is owned and operated by Trapmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. On this episode of How Music Charts, we talk with a multi-hyphenate Latin music mogul, Paris Cabezas. Born and raised in rural Cuba, playing classical piano, the MIT Applied Mathematics grad got his start working on the first generation of Yamaha's digital mixing consoles. This studio engineering stint led him to becoming the Grammy-nominated producer that he is now, while also applying his technical acumen to the various functions of Intercat Music Group, where Cabezas is now a managing partner. Intercat Music Group handles artist marketing, music distribution, YouTube optimization, and neighboring rights for a range of artists, many of whom are Latin stars like Puerto Rican singer-songwriter Faruco. Intercat Music's artists and network of owned and operated channels garner over 630 million streams per month, 330 million video views per month, and 22 million subscribers on all networks, while having distributed over $7 million in royalties to indie artists. The group focuses on a data-driven, tech-it-yourself approach to digital assets, the results speak for themselves. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Perez Cabezas. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm thrilled. We're living uh, intense times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, so we start um, with just kind of your background and kind of how you got started in the industry. So it seems your first step uh, in your career was uh, a very technical one in, in graduate school. So would that be accurate or were there kind of signs before MIT and all that stuff? No, that, 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 is, that is accurate. Uh, I, I think uh, the two worlds uh, kind of became a blend. The, the, the musical one, uh, I, I started a music conservatory in Cuba and uh, it, it, it was my first love. And uh, in, in the U.S., when I came over, I was, was 17 years old uh, when I came over to the U.S. I, I kind of realized it, it was hard. Uh, those, those days were, were complicated days. It was hard. And music obviously was not a priority. I, I had the occasional gig uh, here and there. But I, I had a natural predisposition to sciences. So I... I, I pretty early learn that I, I was a better technician than, than I was a musician. <laughs> and, and thank God that I had that realization. Otherwise, it would have been my biggest frustration <laughs> the rest of my career. Uh, you know, as, as I tell everyone, uh, understanding music is almost like speaking a whole separate language. And it is deeply connected with mathematics. And I, I had a natural predisposition, so I had the opportunity for I went to college, Western Washington University, and there was a math contest, and and I was compelled to to, to assist. So back then there were scouts from 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 different places. Uh, one of them was was Yamaha. I, I have written a, a a thesis about uh, acoustics and and the impact of of sound through a timeline, the, the changes in volume and whatnot, and, and and it was appealing to them, and and they offered me the gig. So I I had the opportunity of a lifetime. It, it was a post grad uh, series of, of of courses and applications at MIT. And the rest is, is history. That during that time, it was pretty much mathematics applied to, to, to acoustics and, and sound. And the blend really happened after the fact. After, after I left that, that gig back and forth uh, between Japan and, and, and the US, uh, I, I had a, a phenomenal opportunity uh, to work uh, for Young Money Entertainment. Uh, in, in the business and technical development side. And, and during the days of, of the Carter III uh, album by Little Wayne, it was, it was an incredibly popular album. And, and, and I had a, a great mentor, uh, Wayne's manager at the time, Cortez Bryant. 
and uh, I really looked up to, to to him. He was a real pioneer and, and very advanced in, in the world of artist development. And that exposed me to the early beginnings of the transition between analog recordings in, in, into this massive revolution of uh, digital music aggregation to, uh, to the clouds and the different services. It was the, the, the very beginnings of, of Spotify. Uh, it, it was the, the breakthrough of, of iTunes when they released the very first iPod U2 edition. I don't know, you guys are probably too young to remember that, but it was incredibly revolutionary for, for, for those of us who came from the analog world, you, you, you have to understand, I mean, sequencing sound on a, on a two inch tape machine took an act of God and a very precise hand for splicing tape. So, you know, and, 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 and I was lucky enough to, to be exposed to, to, to that. So that, that was, that, that was an incredible experience. Uh, InnerCAD started around 2011. Uh, uh, I, 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 InnerCAD evolved. It, it was born out of a factory of, of CDs, uh, injecting CDs. Uh, that, that's where I met my, my now wife and partner, Ana Gonzalez. And, we, we we met. I, I used to manufacture albums for for the artists we, we handled, and, and and we met. We, we restarted dating, and, and and I saw an incredible opportunity. They they had about seven thousand indie artists clients that manufacture CDs in in, in their factory. And <laughs> one day I sat down. And I said, "You you do know there's an expiration date uh, for physical media." And, and, and this is happening, there's, there's... What year was this? Do you recall what year this was? This, this was about, about 2008, 2009. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> and I told them, look, you do realize that it's, it's going to happen. And there's going to be a point where automobiles are not longer going to be manufactured with CD players. The same thing happened with A-Tracks. He goes, what's an A-track? It's an A-track tape. <laughs> exactly. it, was exactly. it was before the cassette. <laughs> you know, th things, things are going to evolve. It's the natural level of things. And I, I told her, I think you have an opportunity to, to, to migrate these, these thousands of clients that, that you have and give them an opportunity for very early so that they can have the catalogs managed by you, uh, aggregated to, to, to a digital domain. It seemed crazy at the beginning, uh, but 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 somehow things things evolved naturally. They 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 took the, the nice direction, and if I would have waited uh, two more years, it, it could have been really complicated. I, I was early enough, and and I had the relationships that I developed with with the young money and the cash money records. Uh, uh, engagement and I, I was able to get some of the very early direct agreements with uh, digital service providers. Shortly after that, it got shut down pretty quickly. And uh, during, during that time, I was approached by, by, by a dear friend, uh, Nixon Caglia. He, he uh, spearheads a company called New Meta. And, uh, and we started talking uh, about the current choreography for, for metadata aggregation to the stores and whatnot. So I, I joined uh, this, this working group uh, of software developers and, and, and guys that had a deep understanding of music metadata. And, and I decided that it, it was time to invest in, in our very own uh, server farm, in, in our very own cloud space for for data transformation. One thing led to another and we, we started converting clients and, and some of the, the very early data engagements we got uh, were administering neighboring rights catalogs for artists. It was, it was the very beginning of sound exchange. And, and a lot of performers had no idea that, that there was money out there 
uh, around the world for them. And, and they, they really had no idea of what was going on in the world of uh, neighboring rights. You know, the, the U.S. was not a signer uh, of the Rome Treaty. So, so U.S. Uh, performers that, that were American citizens were not eligible, but, but then the ones that had dual nationality, uh, they were eligible for, to collect those performances in, in commercial radio abroad. So, so, so we started this process of educating. Before we knew it, we were managing 500 accounts uh, for, for, for neighboring rights and and our server farms kept, kept growing and, and, and data became the, the, the cornerstone of, of everything we we did from that point on. So so we were we, we were very lucky because it's you know starting now could be uh, the learning curve could, could be incredibly steep. Uh, for, for, for people that don't have uh, the analytical background and, and we're not cautious enough to, uh, to surround themselves with, with a team uh, that understands not just music, but also data. Right, right. So <clears throat> actually, we're going to get into Intercan a little bit, but I actually wanted to ask a little bit about before that jump between Yamaha and Young Money. That seems like a really interesting step in your career. Can you tell us a little bit how that part happened? That happened because after after Yamaha, I finished my agreement with them. I, I joined Polygram Music in the, in the, in the licensing division for film. And uh, in, in working with, with Polygram, I, I had to come to Miami very often. And I, I made a friend, uh, Lou Bermudez, that, that was uh, the man on, on the ground managing operations for, for young money. And, you know, I told Lou, I said, man, I'm back and forth in New York. I've been with them for a couple of years. I, I think I'm going to go on my own. And he told me, look, before you go on your own, I'm, I'm, I'm with this group. And I think, man, I think your expertise is going to come in handy. You know, the business management office, uh, it, it, it's here in Miami. Everything's here in Miami. Why don't you give it a shot? And honestly, I didn't think about it too much. <laughs> I didn't think about it twice. And, and that's how it started. It was a friend that gave me the opportunity and said, look, give it a shot. And, and you know, I, if, if I wouldn't have, probably would have never gotten exposed to, to this whole new world. You know, a lot, a lot of co-workers that stayed under uh, the corporate structure of large multinationals, it, it took them a lot longer uh, to experiment. You know, when, when you're small and, and you don't need to ask permission to, to experiment with things and, and, and data and, and try different things, under a corporate environment, it's, 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 it's a lot more difficult. It's, it's, it's really complex. And as you guys probably know, it's, it's compliance is, is, is important, budget meetings and whatnot. And between one thing and another, it takes them a while to implement changes. Yeah, sure. Um, so you're also a Grammy-nominated producer. So yes. can you tell us a bit about that project and, and how that came to fruition? I I am deeply rooted in 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 Cuban music and and uh, Cuban traditions. Uh, there isn't a day that that I don't think about about my my hometown. And you know, life worked against me. It's 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 it has been difficult. I have never been able to return to Cuba for political reasons, and. Uh, but it's 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 a never dying love for for my people, my my, my culture, and, and and Cuban music is incredibly rich. And a friend of mine, an incredibly talented uh, Cuban artist, Alvida Rodriguez, uh, we were having dinner one, one day, and 
and she said we, we both had a passion for for the for the 1950s decade uh, in Cuban music every, every everything that that happened around the world there's a saying from from old school Cubans that if, if you wanted to be somebody you had to go to Cuba and be successful musically in Cuba in the 1950s you know you know Nakin Cole Frank Sinatra all the prominent figures even Carlos Gardel multiple genres they they all had to make a pit stop in Cuba and and, and do something uh, musically interesting so we were fascinated by the 1950s and one day having dinner she goes why don't we why don't we make an album let's revive let's let's get those arrangements modernized a little bit preserving the essence of of what those great pieces were and let's produce an album and i love the idea and i told her yeah let's do that so so we picked phenomenal pieces from that time period and and we recruited the best of the best musicians in in, in miami all grammy nominated grammy winners and, and that's how the project came about just a group of friends getting together in, in, in my recording studio and 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 the album came out incredibly beautiful because we, we combine the speed of the digital workflow in the studio but everything was recorded old school. Everything was was analog. We we tracked everything on tape. Everything was edited later in the digital workstation. But everything was originally tracked. So sonically, the album was gorgeous. We we even had a vinyl run for that album. So that that album was was uh, Latin Grammy nominated and Grammy nominated. That's amazing. Congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. I got to ask now because I used to watch um, Pensado's Place, the, the show that Dave Pensado, the, uh, the, the mixing engineer, used to make. I think he's still making it right now, actually. Um, are you, I mean, now in 2021, are you fully in the box, quote unquote? Uh, do you record purely digitally or are you kind of. Absolutely not. No? Okay. Tell us about that. Not in the box. Absolutely not. Look, it, it's math, it's science. There's a phenomenon when you convert, when you use digital converters uh, to convert analog music. The, the principle of capturing sound has not really changed a lot. You, you, you have to understand you, you're hitting a capsule in the microphone, it goes through a cable, it gets to an amplifier, it's a preamp, and the preamp sends a signal now to an interface that has converters. You have to translate the analog range of frequencies to digital. There is a phenomenon that happens. It's called staircasing. Staircasing, the, the, the digital signal is, is a square sine wave versus the analog sine wave that modulates a larger range of frequencies and frequencies in between. So sonically, what we were able to capture in, in the analog world unless you're working on a really, really, really clocking rate in the digital world for, for, for those converters, you lose some of the warmth. And, and a lot of that warmth is actually noise, believe it or not. So some of the early Dolby systems and the friction of the heads on the tape, it, it all contributed to texture and, and deep sonics. So, we continue in, in, in some kind of a hybrid. We, we use vintage microphones with, with vintage leaf preamps, for example, from the 1960s, 1970s, that were very, very rich. We, we bounce on tape and, and we try to use high sample rates, 96 kilohertz and up so that we can reduce the steps on the staircasing as much as possible and pre preserve the warms, the sonic warms of what we record. So now we're definitely not in the box. See, that's what I was looking for, Rucker. I was, I was looking for that PhD knowledge right there. <laughs> <laughs> he just dropped it. Yeah, he just dropped it. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting, you know, looking at your your career, Paris. It's I have several people in my life who have very left brain occupations, like, uh, computer engineers, data scientists who have a strong love of music too. 
when they're not on the clock, they have a very strong love of music. So that's, it seems to be very true for you. Do you find an interesting connection? I think you mentioned it already. Absolutely. Those two sides. Oh yeah. Do you have a lot of friends like somewhere like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Guys that are absolute genius. I mean, I, I have friends that are dear friends or rangers that are some of the best people I've ever worked with in, in, in my life. Guys that I, sometimes I sit with them. I said, I bet you can see and touch music when you're thinking about an arrangement. It is extraordinary. Mm. Mm. So um, for this last couple questions, uh, um, we're about to get into inner cat, but uh, I got to give a shout out to Zach Bolak. Uh, he he told me a little bit about you, uh, which was really fascinating. Uh, he told me about carbon fiber music. Yes, and that of course. The channel that you started, and for those who might not be familiar, uh, over 3 million uh, subscri uh, subscriptions on YouTube, uh, 1 billion views plus, videos with uh, Daleks, um, Bele, Arcangel, Menor Menor, Akim, um, a lot of really big Latin um, kind of heavy hitters there. Can you tell us a little bit about that channel and how it worked? Man, it, it, was, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. A, a dear friend and, and founder of, of Carbon Fiber, uh, Franklin Martinez, is, is somebody that I admire tremendously. Tremendously because he did that alone. And, and he did it with, with, with an incredible personal dedication to the project. He, he has a, a deeply friendship with, with recording artists and writer Farruko. And, and it's, it's an incredible bond. And against all odds, they founded and built Carbon Fiber Music. And I, I was lucky enough that, that I was introduced to them uh, by, by his now attorney, uh, David Berkerson. And, and, and we hit it off. And, and, and I told them, look, I, I, I think I, I can offer something. So, so I, I could power uh, the label. We, we, we can bring compliance and, and take it to another level as if it was a multinational because we, we, we don't have intermediaries and we have the freedom to, to experiment with, with different things. And, and sure enough, uh, it was four or five years of, of developing and, and, the, the record is, uh, the label is, is now blooming and, and in full force. And, and, and a lot of these channels had some, some decent audience. But what I tell everyone, if, if you don't implement housekeeping, the, the, the channels are not going to grow by themselves because the world suffers from massive attention deficit when it comes to music. Uh, the, the, the useful life of, of, of releases is, is ever, every time shorter. So, so it, it was my biggest, Carbon Fire was my biggest trial uh, to put my money where my mouth was in, in, in developing all these these multi channels and, and and building audiences and whatnot. So it was it was an amazing experience, and I'll be forever grateful to to Franklin for for the opportunity. So what's uh, what was your first introduction to Intercat? Uh, I know you mentioned it a little bit with uh, with your now wife, but can you can you kind of talk about a little bit more and how you came to be? You know, we 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 opened the company I, together. I, I, you know, and 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 it's funny because we we didn't know what we were gonna name the company. So my my wife had a passion for for cats, rescuing cats, pets, and 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 whatnot. We we both love animals, and and sitting in the conference room one day, I said we we should name it Inner Cat. It, it has a significance. You know, there's, there's a saying, I have to, you have to bring out your, your inner cat. You have to fight for what you have passions for. So it, it's kind of the embedded message in, in, in what we did. So it, 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 was, it was an attempt to take advantage of, of a dying business and, and use the synergy that, that she was having and convert it in, into a brand new business. Uh, and and that's how Intercat was born. It, 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 it our our motto was to to empower independent artists, to give them 
opportunities as if they were signed to multinationals, not just recording facilities, but the opportunity to have direct access to curators, to the stores, to playlisting, to marketing, and, and to educate along the way. I mean, you can tell us why you chose applied mathematics at MIT, but I think one thing that sets music apart from a lot of different art forms is how closely bound up it is in numbers and math um, a lot more than than other art forms. So in the interest of that, I'm just going to rattle off some numbers related to Intercat and ask you about them. So 630 million streams per month, 330 million video views per month, 22 million subscribers, uh, $7 million in royalties to paid to indie artists and 300% growth from 2016 to 2019. How are you tracking all of this data? And do you have like custom dashboards you're working with, your own data infrastructure, or are you mostly relying on individual platform backend analytics? Absolutely not. Dealing with individual platforms is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know... Everything, everything we have is is, is custom, and, and it was built uh, based on, on on the current dynamics of, of of the platforms. Every every platform has uh, a, a dynamic output of of not just reporting, but analytics. But thank God that the world was smart enough to put together brilliant data scientists and they invented something called APIs. So programmatic interfaces are, are a blessing and they make interconnection possible. So well, one of the things we did is the YouTube program requires that our staff is certified with Google for for copyright management, catalog management, claims, content management, and whatnot. During those certifications, we were exposed to the wonders of, of Google Cloud, uh, Amazon AWS, and whatnot. We, we already had some servers and virtual machines replicated on the cloud, but we, we started digging uh, a great deal in, into the Google Cloud things, and and we became cloud architects, uh, taking all the certifications, and mostly all our systems live within the Google Cloud. We have large clusters of, of Kubernetes and virtual machines, and most of our data transformations converge in a, a big security repository uh, where, where all our big data gets transferred to. Every, every night, I mean, night we have multiple jobs that connect. We have proprietary connectors. They connect to the APIs of, of all the DSPs, uh, Apple Music, Spotify, Deezer, and, and whatnot. And th that connection uh, rallies the changes of the, of the previous day and brings all the statistics, not just royalties, but statistics that allows us to uh, use amongst other tools, uh, Google Data Studio to, to provide custom dashboards. Because it's not just the analytics, it's, it's the results of marketing campaigns that we run on behalf of labels and artists. We, we currently run hundreds of, of campaigns every month, not just for indie guys, but for multinationals that, that, that hire us as digital agencies to uh, to build comprehensive campaigns. And, and those analytics come in, in bundles of millions of lines. So, so we serve them and segregate them through processes in the Google Cloud. And, and, and some of the, the tools uh, are, are Google tools to, to serve these analytics. And, and one of them is, is Google Studio. We, we, we use uh, Tableau for some things, Microsoft Business Intelligence tools for, for others, but mostly uh, it, it's custom dashboards and Google Data Studio that, that we serve. It's, it's easier for security purposes uh, to use Google Data Studio to serve data to our clients. And, and it has worked phenomenally. On that note, what proportion would you say of your um, company is like tech-minded 
for like developers or engineers versus creative minded, like uh, designers um, or more music industry folk and how much of your company identity is tech focused versus creative focused? It's, it's, it's a hard question to answer because I, I have jazz students that started with me from Florida International University in an internship program that are incredibly tech-oriented. I, I got the best of both worlds in, in a lot of our creative staff. And, 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 and we also kind of push them and, and introduce them to, to the world of, of software as a service kind of deal, where, for example, our YouTube certified staff, the creative staff, they get certified on, 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 on SQL management. So, so they now run the run analysis dashboard. So the marketing team as well, they, they, they create the run connectors to identify if we manage a thousand channels in our multi-channel network. It's, it's humanly impossible for our YouTube certified staff to manually administer, install, and some features are, are turned on or off in the channels. So they create their own connectors and run their own individual reports so, so, so that they can be efficient at their job. So it's, it's, it's not a, a clean cut, well, you're creative and, and this part of the staff is, is, is entirely technical. There's no such thing. We, however, have a, a, a portion of the staff that doesn't work in the creative part of it that is that is just software developers we 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 have a small team in, in in india of about six developers we have two developers in canada and we have six developers here in miami so everything is 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 blended but i, I would say that most of the company is tech oriented in a recent uh well april 2020 uh, rolling stone article you talk about um, competing against and collaborating with major labels, but also um, developing new tools for music marketing and also hating spreadsheets. So how does an applied mathematics major at MIT end up hating spreadsheets? And how do you, maybe more importantly, how do you try to balance accessibility with complexity when it comes to the tools that you provide? I'll tell you about spreadsheets. In, in this day and age, spreadsheets are, are great for for a. They they are the equivalent of a calculator these days, but when you have to access and model large chunks, clusters of data, in infinite JSON strings, worksheets are the equivalent of an abacus. Just really. There's really not much you can do. You can use a spreadsheet to, to, to model things here and there, but our line of work, our industry is driven by billions and billions of lines. Modeling that kind of data, you need to have the ability to do it on the fly. There isn't a pretty fine platform or a pretty fine piece of software that will be your Swiss army knife. There's no such thing. And, and every record label needs to contemplate having a data science department proficient enough to model data on the fly and run genomic analysis on user behavior. The minute they start understanding that the most difficult thing to, to calculate is human behavior. It, the catalogs are going to continue producing revenue. Artists are going to increase their payouts. It, it's all about understanding audiences and how they behave. So how do you then balance catering to, say, artists versus catering to major labels like a Sony, for instance, like what exactly is the nature of your competitive or collaborative relationship with, with those bigger companies versus artists? Precisely that. My ability to access a high degree of technical tools at a moment's notice. It, it doesn't take committee meetings and staff meetings for me to 
get analyze engagement in 14,000 Vivo channels, for example. I'll put a team together an hour in a conference room in a whiteboard. We design the processes, the transformations, what the objectives are, and we can spit out reports and summaries in 24 hours. It's, it's our ability to quickly access tools that allow us to, to, to adopt these this, this models dynamically. We, we, we don't have rigid structures in-house. Whether, whether it's uh, to design complex marketing campaigns with different objectives and cross-referencing them with, with historical data, or whether it's, it's touring-related campaigns for ticket sales or for, or for virtual concerts, it, it really doesn't matter. So we're able to compete precisely because of that. We, we don't need a lot of babysitting. Uh, to design complex systems. And, 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 and I don't have a glass bowl. We, we are not a unique company. There, there are hundreds of companies like, like, like ourselves. But in the music space, specializing just in music, there are only a handful. Take Chartmetric, for example. It's, it's, I love Chartmetric. It's, 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 it's the most wonderful tool that the industry has seen in two decades. So it's, 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 a, it's precisely about that. It's having the ability to model data quickly and intuitive. And, and that's my competitive edge with, with multinationals and everyone. It's not just about analyzing results or, or, or streaming or, or counting streamings. It's not about the vanity of having millions of views in a video that are meaningless. So, you know, it's, it's, it's about understanding what it is that, that you're seeing and, and making decisions on about the direction you, you want to take. So that, that's my competitive edge. So on that note, can you talk a little bit about um, what exactly the labs feature is and how it helps artists? Oh yeah. So the labs feature is it, it's a it's an experimental uh, division. There are a dozen smart links out there, and in, in my opinion, they are unidirectional. And it, it's difficult to adopt. And I understand that that some of these brilliant companies design these these features for a reason, and, and they stick to them, and and they those are. But it's not enough this day and age. The regular indie artist doesn't have enough knowledge or staff, or even money to to retain the services of a consultant that could build comprehensive campaigns for them so that they can promote their music. They also need to be respected, their contributions to art and to music. It's, it's as relevant as artists assigned to multinationals. Our labs is, is intended to streamline complex processes and make them accessible to indie guys that cannot this. For example, we, we, we have a play and follow link that it's, it's, it's a traditional smart link that has multiple transformations in the middle. So your link never changes from the stage of pre-save all the way to when your promotion ends. It, it evolves along the way. And, and that link will serve analytics to the indie user in the way that they will understand and they will summarize the low-hanging fruits in organic audiences and right then and there with a couple of clicks they can compile a file that could be uploaded to google ads for, for a campaign already built up all they have to do is upload it and run it and and it'll run in the traditional world this process is, is incredibly expensive. You've got to hire an agency. A lot of the indie 
artists out there that are struggling, trying to make it through, they don't have the funds. They, they, they don't have an infrastructure and they deserve a chance because there's an incredible amount of talent out there undiscovered. And if, if I can get one guy to use my tools for free and benefit from it and make it, I'll be a happy, a happy camper. So you mentioned, um, you mentioned earlier neighboring rights and how a lot of artists don't, don't realize that they can, you know, potentially be collecting these royalties. But a lot of artists and a lot of people in the industry, I think, don't understand what neighboring rights are. So can you first explain um, the concept, talk about why it's important and how Intercat differs than other companies when it comes to neighboring rights? Of course. Neighboring rights are also known as related rights. Neighboring rights are not publishing rights, which are traditionally collected by the writers, the composers, uh, the lyricists, and the publishers administering those catalogs. That has nothing to do with that. Uh, it has nothing to do with sync. It has nothing to do with, with, with any other traditional rights. This is a, a related right for sound recording producers, record labels, and performers, not the writer, the individual performing the song. So these rights are, are divided in, in two. One half is, is collected by the owner of the copyright of the sound recording, of the encapsulated sound recording. And the other half is divided amongst the featured artists, the featured performance in it. In the United States, <laughs> There's only one entity that handles uh, neighboring rights, and that entity is Sound Exchange. It's an arm uh, of the U.S. Copyright Office. It's governed by Congress, uh, and the Board of Judges of the U.S. Copyright Office, they, they set the rates, and, and they collect performances, royalties, from non-interactive sources. Non-interactive, uh, the definition is you can't determine how you playlist the sequence of songs. So in this particular case, you have Pandora Radio is, 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 a, is a big portion of, of neighboring rights. Sirius XM is a non-interactive digital station, uh, cable operators with cable stations and, and private webcasters, non-interactive, uh, are also uh, a, a licensed source of, of neighboring rights. It's a prepaid right. You submit, if you're licensing uh, under the DMCA law, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, you're licensing a playlist and you prepay the usage in your station. A sound exchange determines which performers partic participate in that playlist and they pay out uh, to these performers. So, so they have, you know, but the biggest ones are, are Pandora and SiriusXM. Then you have iHeart and, and you have so, so, some of the uh, digital non-interactive stations. There's a hiccup though. The United States is a non-signer of the Rome Treaty, the Rome Convention, which stipulates that across the board performers are entitled of this particular royalty, whether it's commercial radio being FM and, and conventional television, uh, or non-interactive. It really doesn't matter, they're entitled. The rest of the world, uh, except for China, North Korea, People's Republic of Congo, they're non-signers. Surprisingly, the US is not a signer. This, this has political implications. Uh, there's heavy lobbying on behalf of radio station operators. Their case is that they interpret this as an additional tax imposed on top of the publishing revenue they have to pay. So it's, it's intricate. Some of us are advocating for a change because performers deserve that particular rate. From, from the days of the phonograph, it was conceived. But the fact that the U.S. is a non-signer, it, it really hurts a great deal uh, uh, performers in the United States. In reciprocity, when U.S. performers accumulate terrestrial performances in the UK, for example, or Spain or, or any European country that participates in the Rome Conversion, Convention Treaty, in reciprocity, they do not 
hate American performers in the same proportion that Europeans do not collect uh, performances, performances uh, from U.S. commercial sources. So that's what neighboring rights are. There are loopholes, for example, there are certain aspects that qualify that performance for international neighboring rights. So the factors are, are basically elements that without them, the performance is impossible. Having dual nationality and, and your second nationality being from a country that is a signer of the Rome Treaty, it's, it's one of them, elements in, in, in the performance, uh, for example, like uh, primary parts, like tracking vocals in, in a studio that is located in a country that is a signer of the Rome Treaty, it's, it's one of the elements, and, and so on and so forth. So, so those elements are studied, and, and it brings another aspect to this, the analysis of credits. The metadata embedded in the credits lets us know if the performance qualifies for international labouring rights, hence the importance of publishing credits attached to, to, to everything we, we publish. So, so, so that, in a nutshell, is, is what labouring rights is, and, and we take care of audit, auditing these catalogs and these performances to, to make easier that determination. Speaking of neighbors, um, we have been working on this series about um, regional Latin music. Uh, our first, the first part was about Mexican music genres, and the second part is going to be about um, Colombian uh, local genres. So I guess, and Jason, maybe you have some data points off the top of your head from this series, but um, some of these some of the biggest artists in these uh, regional genres are racking up numbers similar to like international superstars. Um, so I wanted to, I guess, get your take on the significance of that, um, not only for these local markets, but for the global music industry writ large looking into the future. It doesn't surprise me. M music is designed for one thing and one thing only. You have to feel something. It has to move your emotional needle one way or another. Sometimes we, we, we lose our, our north, our compass gets a little crazy, but we, we're designed, artists are designed to entertain. We're entertainers and, and the design of, 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 of the compilation of, of, of lyrics and, and instrumental they need to move your emotional needle. You get happy, you get sad, you, you daydream. It's, it's designed for that. You project yourself when you listen to a song and every song makes you feel something different. A lot of people downplay it or simplify it. I say, well, no, it's, it's, it's you know, I'm a party animal. It's, it's about partying. Perhaps it is, perhaps it is, but, but you feel a lot more than that, than just dancing. So these genres were born and, and they lost a little bit of significance with the overtaking of urban music and urban sounds and, and hip hop and these blends and whatnot. But, but, but this rainbow of, of, of genres recently started resurfacing again because they started incorporating familiar elements to these new generations that were used to these, these urban patterns, percussive patterns. And there has been a revival and, and I love that revival. You, you, you get Afro beats popping everywhere with magnificent producer from Kenya, from, from Angola. It's, 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 it's just gorgeous. And this is what music is supposed to be. Mu mu music has no boundaries. Music doesn't understand creed, religion, sexual orientation, color scheme. It, it doesn't understand any of that. It, it, it's a universal language that is designed to, to unite everyone and, and to make people feel something. There's always a message. And smartly enough, Mexico, for example, a lot of regional rhythms have been blending with 
with the traditional reggaeton uh, uh, beat or, or, or percussive bass. And it has been amazing. We, we, we have an artist that designed to us Jambi. Jambi was straight up uh, Puerto Rican style reggaeton. One day in the studio, my wife was there. She, she goes, you know, have you ever tried blending mariachi, Mexican authentic organic mariachi sounds with, with the reggaeton beat and see what happens? Well, what do you know? So they did. The song's name is Oi. It's got 47 million organic views. It has connected like you have no idea. So to bring it all together, I guess, on that sort of um, artistic note, I know you've mentioned that that music uh, is maybe losing some human curation element. So I wonder, because your company um, is so forward-looking and tech-focused, if you have an answer to the question of how we balance the tech and data-driven sort of move fast and break things approach with the time, patience, and care of the artistic approach. You guys are doing it. Charmetric is doing it right now. That's the end. That's the to-go tool to run deep engagement analysis on unsigned artists and, and to promote faster discovery. At least it's our A&R's to-go tool. We couldn't live without Charmetric if we wanted to. It'd be silly to think otherwise. This is how tech helps you. Tech will be your sentinel. It will detect significant changes in engagement. It will detect the status of an artist and it will bring it to a dashboard where you can make a decision and give that artist the opportunity of a push to really break through. The discovery process is heavily obstructed. There is no censorship or, or no curation. You have about 40,000 new releases being aggregated every month to, to, to the stores and, 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 and the verticals are, are, are a handful. So, so, so you have the Latin urban vertical is heavily obstructed and, and there's really no time to go through thousands of, of new releases to discover what makes it. So the, the public in general became used to getting served these pre-curated playlists. Everything is a playlist. Everything is new music this, new music Friday, new music that, everything. And, and what, you, what you do with that is the cycle gets, gets very short. You, you have a cycle that used to be three months working a single you have 10 days and, and the next week comes and you forgot what came up last week. I mean, you, it has to really connect so, so that you can prolong the, the life cycle of that single. Thanks for the kind words, by the way, Paris. We didn't ask him to say that. <laughs> oh, uh, no, absolutely. Listen, this is, I am as, as, as honest as they make it. <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll shoot through a few uh, headlines here and just want to get your your quick take on some uh, recent music industry headlines and trends. Um, you know, we we say try to keep it tweet length, uh, but if you have any other thoughts on it? By all, by all means, go for it. Okay, so here we go. Uh, first one is uh, this is from the Music Ally Bulletin. Uh, it says Triller Who. Universal Music reveals New Deal with TikTok. And so some detail on this. Um, everyone's talking about it, of course, in the news. Uh, yesterday, uh, Universal Music expanded its licensing partnership with TikTok, a global agreement that, that delivers equitable compensation for recording artists and songwriters. Uh, that means TikTok users will now have access to their entire catalog um, in clips form. Um, this is obviously after a couple days of some a little bit of a some some public some public beef, if you will, uh, between the two. Yeah, of course. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, this is about either you jump in in the train of technology and you try to capitalize on the usage of your catalog with a new incredibly popular service, or you will be left out. That's basically what this is about. 
You know, uh, some people will speculate and say, well, TikTok cannot uh, survive without a, a license for Universal Music. Well, that's debatable. That's incredibly debatable. But the truth is, when you have such impact and a bank of subscribers and traffic that massive, you want to be there. And, and the game of the multinationals became market share. Everybody knows this. Market share and everybody, everybody's fighting for that piece. That promotes bad relationships with artists. Because in, in, in the drive of obtaining market share, market share and market share, you cannot possibly have enough bandwidth to develop that many artists. So, so it's, it's, it's about that. It's, it's, there's no magic side. Look, Sony just bought AWOL. What do you think is going to happen? The orchard is going to become the backbone of AWOL at some point. So market share is the word of the day. Sort of related, but on the social media side, um, tw according to Bloomberg, Twitter is considering subscription fees uh, for special features or content from like being able to schedule tweets or being able to tip people that they follow for exclusive content. Um, thoughts on that? Yeah, they and another thousand tech companies in my opinion, it will be a horrendous move because you can currently do that with third-party software. And there are a million tools that you can use for that. So don't become another LinkedIn premium subscription. All right, this next one is from uh, Dan Runcie's Trapital newsletter. Uh, it's about the Super Bowl that just happened uh, this past weekend. Uh, that The weekend, who did the uh, halftime show, of course, the annual um, gala, if you will, the weekend put up $7 million of his own money on top of the $10 million that the NFL typically covers for a, a halftime show. Um, for a horrendous show. <laughs> <laughs> it was just nasty. Okay. Don't okay. hold back. It was horrendous. <laughs> it, it, it was a horrendous show. They had to be ashamed of themselves. And mind you, I don't understand the first thing about football. I wouldn't even know how to grab a football, but I do understand music. <laughs> All right. So this next one is from Sherry Hughes um, newsletter, Water and Music. And it's about tracking genre diversity and fluidity in the Billboard charts. Tracking how fans are co consuming new music and not necessarily in genre silos, but it's more... Um, Fluid and cross genre, I guess, is the um, the takeaway. Yeah, I, I remember when I was a child, where the sole occupation of friends, where we were hanging out, was to go to somebody's house that happened to had a record player to go listen to vinyl and read, and I emphasize on reading the lighter notes, and we would jump from Pink Floyd to Michael Jackson in the same take. So this cross-pollination of genres has been happening for a long time. When somebody comes and, and, and tells us that they want to build a campaign and they want to be laser focused on, on heavy metal only, I look at them, I said, how do you want me to do that? It's impossible. It's impossible because you have hardcore heavy metal fans start listening to mainstream pop and hip hop. In, in as much level as they do their, their preferred genre. So yeah, it's, it's, that is happening. It is not about encapsulating fans into a particular vertical. It's about understanding their behavior when they listen to music. So I uh, just want to say thank you thank for you. chatting with us. Uh, is there any way, are you on socials at all? Are you, if someone yeah. say hi, can you, you want to share how they can maybe, yeah. what's up? That, Instagram, I think, 
I barely Google socials, but it's it's Paris Camisa, so all together. Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, I think. Uh, Paris, again, uh, awesome talking with you. Uh, congrats on all your uh, recent successes and uh, best of luck for the, for the future. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you. Awesome. All right, talk soon, Paris. All right. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right, subscribe for Chartmetric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.